0: What a beautiful day it is this morning. Can't have a prettier day in the middle of February than today. Doesn't seem to me. If you are a visitor, as others have said, thank you for being here. Hope that you'll find that our services are in accordance to God's will. And the things that I speak of this morning are from his word. For that is my desire as I speak this morning to you. I have for your consideration this morning reconciliation that's a big word but to be reconciled or reconciliation is to bring two parties together so they can be one and their differences can be done away with meaning to reconcile to reconcile differences so that way can be together so what does it take to be right with God what does it take to be reconciled to our father You remember that way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, God pushed them out of the garden. And there was a separation between God and man from that point forth. And what was that? Sin. Man could not be reconciled to God because of his sin. But God, in his mercy, from that point forward, throughout the, we've read in all the Old Testament and the prophets, drove towards a Savior. Drove and pointed towards one that would come and would reconcile man to God. We know that person as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I got a question for you this, this morning. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, it, you could get a number of answers for that. He came to die on the cross for our sins, he certainly did. He came to show us what it was like, what the Father was like. He did. He came to show us how to live a life that is pleasing to God, and he did. There were many things that he did, but the one thing that he really came for was to reconcile the differences between man and God. That was his purpose in life. If you look at Romans 5 and 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The writer here has an argument. He says, you know, somebody's really a good man. Somebody might die for that guy. But for a sinner... But God, in his wisdom, his grace, and his mercy, had a plan to send his son to die that he could justify our sins, that he could wipe them away, so that we could be reconciled with him and be part with him. And the last sentence there says, And now only, not only that, but we also rejoice in God that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The writer here to the Romans said, you have received that reconciliation. Well, what was it? We'll talk about that in a minute. The reconciliation that was brought to us through the death of Jesus on the cross. Unfortunately, as we read in Romans 3 and 23, everyone sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We are separated from God By sin, all of us are, everyone, every man. But God in his mercy said, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. The crucifixion on the cross and the blood that ran from the cross was that sacrifice that purchased us. I've got the word propitiation here. As far as I know, I cannot ever remember using that word in a sentence or finding it anywhere in literature except right here. And I thought it was really interesting. If you look at the New King James Version, you know what it says that word is? Propitiation. And I'm going, what is that? They didn't even change it. It's certainly not something we would use in common English, as you would think that the New King James would try to translate it to. But perpetuation, according to Webster, is to appease or to make favorably inclined. What did Jesus do to reconcile you and I to God? He allowed, he appeased the wrath of God on sin, and he inclined God to look upon us favorably. The perpetuation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who hath faith in Jesus. Our God is a just God. And you and I as sinners deserve to be punished when we don't do what God has told us to do. And he wasn't just going to overlook it couldn't do that he's a just God but he's also a merciful God and he sent his son to wipe the to purchase us for him to purchase those sins to wipe them out not to overlook them but to get rid of them because his son died for us it wasn't cheap Isaiah 53 and 3 said he is despised and rejected of men It was the sacrifice of the Son of God. A little farther down there, in that 53rd uh, chapter of Isaiah, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou makest my soul an offering to sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his Son and shall be satisfied. Propitiation, appeased, inclined to be favorable. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide his portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto the death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? You and me were the transgressors, and he died on the cross. He became an inter to intercede. He was an inamer, in, He was between God and us. He purchased the propitiation with his own blood. For scripture there. We see it every time we look on a football game on TV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So Christ reconciled us to God so that we can be with him forever. In 1 John 5 and 11 it says this is the record. This is the written down. This is the truth. This is what it's all about. The record that God had given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. We're speaking here of spiritual life, <laughs> eternal life, life of the soul. Well, according to first, here in First John, that the record says that we have got to have Jesus Christ within us. If we do not have him, we do not have spiritual life. I want to spend the rest of the lesson looking at that someone that was reconciled to God. Van read for us this morning the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I wanted to use this example because it's probably, arguably, the, the most detailed conversion of someone to Christianity that we find in the New Testament, because it it is pointed in three places. Here, Luke, who wrote Acts, has a pretty good detailed description of what happened, but Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, explains it to the leadership in Jerusalem in the temple in the 22nd chapter of Acts, and in the 26th chapter of Acts, he he explains it to King Agrippa in other terms. So we have three accounts, or three writings, in Acts, about this particular conversion. Well, who was Saul? I'm going to ask you a question. Was he a religious man? Well, we know in Acts 22, where he was speaking to the leaders there at the temple in Jerusalem, describing his conversion, he said, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard he spoke to them in Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born of Tarsus, Sicilia, brought, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamal, taught according to the strictness of my father's law, and was zealous towards God as you are, you all are today. What did Saul say of himself? He said, I was a religious man. There are people today that say, well, all you have to do is let God into your heart. All you have to do is live a good life. All you have to do is whatever you want to believe is fine. Just follow it and do it. Well, here was a man that was extremely religious, but do you think he was doing the right thing? No, he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He talked of himself in Philippians 3 and 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else think he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. He said, I'm more religious than any of you. Circumcised the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. He said, even when I was persecuting the church, I was doing it for a religious cause. I thought that this was a group of people that weren't doing what God wanted them to do, and it was my responsibility to do something about it. He said, I'm blameless of that. My conscience is blameless of that because I did it in ignorance. I didn't know why. I, I didn't have the right answer." Next question I want to ask is, did Saul when did Saul become a believer? Now, he obviously wasn't a believer when he was out persecuting the church, but we find, as van read this morning in Acts 9, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round about from heaven. Then he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why do you perse- why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I looked up goads because I didn't know what that was, and evidently it was a sharp stick that they used, the farmers used to move an oxen along, and they would poke him in his haunches. And then if he kicked, it just stuck in deeper. So it was hard to kick against against the goads. According to what I was reading, it's sort of a, a common phrase that everybody in that period of time would understand what it meant. You shouldn't be doing that. When do you think that Saul of Tarsus believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? I think right here. Put yourself in that situation. You're going down the road to Damascus, and a light is so bright in the middle of the day that basically it knocks you to your knees. And a voice out of that light says, I am Jesus of whom you persecute. I think that's when I'd believe. How about you? I think that's when Saul of Tarsus believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And it says there, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would you want me to do? I believe now. I know I need to, what am I got to do about it? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. It's a common religious belief in our modern-day time that all you got to do is believe. Let Jesus into your heart. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're saved. Well, what did Jesus say? If that's true when he said, get up, Saul, you believe now, I want you to go out and tell everybody else about it. I want you to go out and try to convert other people to Christ. No, what he said was, "Is get up and go into Damascus. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. So belief was there, but there was something else required. I want to make sure that we understand. Belief is essential. You have to have belief. What good does it do to come to church and to worship if you don't believe that Christ is not the Son of God? Belief is essential. After all, in Mark 16, 15, and 16. We call it the Great Commission, where Jesus told his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So you got to believe. Belief is essential. There's another account in Acts of a conversion of, we call him the Ethiopian Munich. Philip, a preacher, was told by the Spirit to go attach himself and get acquainted with the open eunuch and ride with him and preach him Jesus, and he did. And they came to a body of water, and the man said, What hinders me to be baptized? What did he say? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Belief is essential. You got to have it. But it's not enough. Just to believe is not enough. That's pretty plain when you look at James, the second chapter. In James, the second chapter, in the 17th verse, it says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But somebody will say, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The devils know that there is one God and they will answer to him. The scriptures are full of examples where the demons that were on the earth during the time of Christ knew who Christ was. And feared him. But is there anyone in this room think that the devils are going to heaven? No. The scriptures tell us there's a special place reserved for them. And it's not heaven. But they believe. Because they know who God is and they know who his son was. So there's something else needed other than belief. Saul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And Jesus told him, go into Damascus, and it will be told what you had to do. So something else was required. Back in Acts, the second chapter, we find the first recorded gospel sermon. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost in front of thousands of Jews, and he went through the, the history of the Jewish people in his sermon, showing them and pointing them towards Jesus Christ and telling them who Jesus Christ was. And he says at the end, He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom He crucified, both Lord and King and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? These people, the, the King James Version said they were pricked in their hearts. They believed that what they had done was wrong. They believed through this message that Jesus was the Son of God, and they crucified him. They asked the same question that Saul of Tarsus asked. What have I got to do? How am I going to get out of the situation that I have put myself in? What do I need to do? I want to step back just for a second and ask you this question. Do you think Saul was committed to change his life? Do you think that he wanted to change the way that he was and to do what Christ wanted him to do? Look what it says here in the 8th verse. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open. he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. How upset was Saul of Tarsus? I don't know about you, but it'd be really hard for me to not eat anything for three days, but it's inhuman not to drink anything for three days. That'll kill you. Saul of Tarsus was so concerned about (laughs) what he had done that he was uh, doing these things in repentance and worry about how he was going to get out of this. Look what in in Acts the ninth chapter, the next verse down in 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of justice, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Jesus didn't tell Ananias, he said, you know, go over there to Justice and you'll find him in the backyard visiting with Justice, who was, he was staying with. Or he might have decided to go to town or to go walk down the beach. No, he said, you're going to find this Saul of Tarsus praying. He fasted for three days. He didn't drink any water for three days. Basically, he prayed for three days. Again, there's a common religious idea that all you have to do is pray and let Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Well, if there's anybody that prayed any harder than this, not me. His prayers knowing what he had done to crucify I'm sorry, to to fight against the church, to fight against the church. It says that he was there when Stephen was stoned, and he gave his consent. He had people martyred for Christ's sake. Don't you think his prayers were deep? His prayers were there into his heart. Prayer is not enough for the sinner to be reconciled with God. If it would have been, then this would have been enough. Saul was a religious man. He had come to believe in Jesus Christ, and he knew what he had done was wrong. He needed to repent. He needed to change his life, and he was committed to do whatever was necessary. Was he saved? Was he in a safe place? Scriptures tell us that he needed something else. Something else was needed. We find in Acts 22 again where Saul or the Apostle Paul as as he was now called was talking to the leadership there in the temple. He said this one Ananias, a devout man according to the law hath a good report of all Jews which dwelt there. Came unto me and stood and said unto me, "Brother Saul, receive thy sight." And the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, "The God of our fathers hath chosen you that thou shouldest know his will and see that that just the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be be his witness unto all men, of what thou hast seen, and heard." What did it? What did he say? What did? the Apostle Paul say about his conversion, when Ananias showed up, Ananias said, you have got a mission. God, Jesus Christ, and God through Jesus Christ have pointed out something you're going to do for me. You're going to go out and you're going to preach the gospel to everybody and you're going to show everybody, you're going to be a witness to everybody. Ananias said, that's what you're going to do. But he said, and now, now why tarryst thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here was a man who believed. He was a man that was repentant, a man that was going to do whatever he had to do. Here was a man that was given a commission by Jesus Christ, of what he was going to do the rest of his life. And Ananias said, none of that's going to happen until you get yourself baptized and get those sins washed away. You know why? Because that's how you reconcile yourself with God. You reconcile yourself with God by having the sins washed away because the sins is what causes us not to be reconciled with God. And that's what Ananias told him to do. We all need the same thing all of us. We mentioned back in the second chapter of Acts where the apostle Peter was the first gospel sermon and was giving to thousands of of Jews there and we know that they were convinced, they were pricked in their hearts and they asked the same question, what are we going to do about it? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Isn't that interesting, or it is to me, that these people were convinced that Jesus was Lord and they had killed him? What kind of sin is that? How can you justify yourself because of that? But they got the same answer. You can get those sins remitted by washing them away through baptism. The greatest sin that you could have can be remitted by washing it away with baptism. We're going to finish our lesson here. Add a question, another question. What did Saul do? Once he had done all of this, what did he do? He told King Agrippa in Acts, the 26th chapter there, relating this same conversion. He said, but rise and stand upon my feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which I have seen and of those things which in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, that is in me. Jesus told Saul of Tarsus, you're going to go out through all the world and you're going to tell people about me and you're going to tell them how to get their sins removed so they can be sanctified, they can be in a safe place by faith in Jesus Christ and me. We know that that's what the Apostle Paul did He went throughout the known world setting up congregations, teaching those people what they needed to do to be saved, which is what they said here. And we can find numerous examples in all of the books or letters that he wrote for most of the New Testament he penned. I want to just use one example. What he wrote to the Colossaea brothers in Colossians 2 and 11 in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You are shown before God with something that wasn't made with hands. And putting off of the body of the sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses how do you get reconciled with God you get reconciled with God by getting your sins forgiven reconciled with God by having your sins washed away what did Paul teach those people that he went out into the world to teach he said you need to be baptized so that you can get your sins remitted all your trespasses gone Every man needs that, to be reconciled to God. You do, I do, everyone does. I hope there's something in the lesson that allows you to think about this, where you stand in your relationship to God. As Franklin said, you need to be in that safe place, that sanctuary. To get there, you've got to have your sins washed away. We ask that we send the invitation, the gospel invitation, someone subject to the gospel call. Come as we stand and sing two verses of the Psalm Selected.